Today, from the global lane, the U.S. disengages and Muslims claim victory, all in the name of a mythical prophet? Moses is mentioned dozens of times in the Quran. Muhammad is only mentioned four times, and there's no biographical information given about him. COVID third wave in Myanmar. People are dying from a lack of oxygen. With so many people dying, you know, there's not enough ambulances to go around and pick up the bodies. As millions of Americans enjoy summer vacations, their pessimism is rising. Inflation right now, we haven't been there since August of 2008. And exposing the truth about this one incident may bring some credibility to a partisan January 6th committee. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. President Biden and Iraqi Prime Minister al-Kadimi have reached an agreement to complete the U.S. combat mission in Iraq by the end of this year. It comes as U.S. troops end their mission in Afghanistan, and the Taliban advance militarily there. Well, joining us is the director of Jihad Watch, author Robert Spencer. Mr. Spencer's latest book, Did Mohammed Exist? An Inquiry into Islam's Obscure Origins, is now revised and expanded. Robert, it's always good to talk with you, so I want to discuss your book in a moment. But first, how do you think the U.S. troop withdrawal, those decisions, are being viewed by Iran and America's adversaries in the Middle East? What might American disengagement mean for the future of the region? There's no doubt that Iran, the Taliban, and America's other adversaries in the region see America's withdrawal as a victory for Islam, for jihad, and a tremendous opportunity for them to advance. Uh, this was not necessary. It was inevitable that we would leave the Middle East at some point. Uh, many of these missions were ill-advised. They had no definition of victory and no end point and were uh, ill-advised from the beginning, really. But at the same time, the way that the disengagement is being handled is all in the context of the Biden administration's appeasement of the Islamic Republic of Iran and is being seen as a tremendous boon by the Islamic Republic of Iran precisely at a time when, is being, when it is being threatened from within. In other words, the Biden regime is really Iran's best friend at this point. And, and for a long time, uh, Iran has supported jihad, Hezbollah and other groups throughout the Middle East and the world. And we're seeing some protests now in Iran. Do you expect them to expand or are these demonstrations just momentary, fleeting? It really depends on what Biden's handlers do now. If they follow through on returning to some nuclear agreement, removing all sanctions, this will lead to billions of dollars flowing into the coffers of the Iranian mullahs. And that means that they will be able to put down quite brutally, as they have in the past, any demonstrations within the country. These demonstrators, in many cases, are protesting precisely the diversion of resources to jihad activities overseas and in other countries rather than taking care of their own people. But Biden's handlers may actually enable the Iranian regime to do both, to continue to finance jihad activity, terror activity around the world, as well as to crush dissent at home. Okay, now to your book. Chapter four begins with a statement, if Mohammed did not exist, it was necessary to invent him. First, why do you think he may not have existed? And if so, why do you believe he may have been invented? 
Well, Gary, take a simple comparison with the origins of Christianity. And we know that the Lord Jesus lived in the early 30s of the first century. And you take a 60-year period after that to the 90s, you have the completion of the New Testament, the construction of churches in many areas, people who are not Christians talking about Christianity, and so on. You take a comparable period from Muhammad's death in the year 632, according to Islamic tradition, to the 690s, and you have Arabs conquering North Africa, the Middle East, Iran, going into India, a tremendous record of conquest, unparalleled in human history, and there is virtually no mention of Muhammad and no mention whatsoever of Islam or the Quran or the idea that there is a new religion at all among the conquerors. So that's a very glaring, unexplained absence that I explore in the book. Reading your book, one point that stood out to me, among many, of course, were the coins that were discovered. Assyrian one dates back to the year 686 or 687, more than 50 years after Muhammad. And you say that and other coins from that period bear the cross and the word Muhammad. So why is that significant, Robert? Would that not be proof that Muhammad was an actual person, not myth? Just just the contrary, Gary, actually, because the uh, Hadith, the reports of Muhammad's words and deeds, which all date from the 9th century, 200 years after Muhammad is supposed to have lived, quote Muhammad saying that Jesus is going to come back and break the cross because the Quran says that Jesus was not crucified, and the idea that a prophet was crucified, they considered uh, Jesus to be a prophet, the idea that a prophet could be crucified and suffer loss is an insult to Allah who would presumably prevent prophets from suffering such a fate. So the idea that the cross, which is considered an offense and an insult in Islam, would be put on the coins by Muslim rulers who were familiar with this statement of Muhammad is virtually inconceivable. It's much more likely that the statement was created long after the coins and that the cross became something ruled out in Islam long after the origins of the Arab empire that created the coins with the cross and the word Muhammad on them. Yeah, it's interesting to see the cross on those coins. Uh, And you mentioned that the Quran says very little about Muhammad. He's actually named only about four times in the Quran. So tell us more about that. And don't the Hadiths provide more references to him? Yes, you know, it's really quite extraordinary. Moses is mentioned dozens of times in the Quran. So is Abraham. So is Jesus. They uh, re- they contradict the Bible's records of these people, but they are mentioned many times. Whereas Muhammad, as you noted, is only mentioned four times, and there's no biographical information given about him. There is the messenger and the prophet. They are referred to many times, but not named. And the assumption that that's Muhammad is something that is attached from Islamic tradition to the Quran. It's not in the Quran itself. We only hear about Muhammad in tremendous detail 200 years after he lived when those Hadith reports were constructed. And there are so many contradictions within them that it seems that what most likely happened is that different factions of Muslims at the time that Muhammad was invented, began to manufacture stories about him that would support their particular view in a dispute. And then the other side would manufacture a story in which he took the opposite side. So the Quran is full of contradictions and is virtually useless as an actual historical source. And Robert, quickly, I'm sure many Muslims believe your book is blasphemous. Someone even tried to poison you once. So how do you respond? And why do you continue to push forward on this? 
Well, you know, as we know, as Christians, there have been historical explorations of Christianity for hundreds of years, and some of them contradict Christian doctrine, and Christians take offense at them, but nobody's been killed. Nobody's been threatened. Uh, it's understood in the West that there's free inquiry, free discourse, and that's a foundation of a free society. But nobody's done this about Islam, or very few people, the people I discuss in the book, because people are afraid. And we have to stand up against violent intimidation and this kind of bullying, or we're only going to get more of it. Well, it seems pretty well documented to me. Robert Spencer, author of the expanded and revised book, Did Mohammed Exist? An Inquiry into Islam's Obscure Origins. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Six months after the military seized power in a coup in Myanmar, citizens of the Asian nation, also known as Burma, are facing an additional crisis. A third wave of COVID-19, one of the worst in the world, is claiming thousands of more victims. Myanmar's medical system is now believed to be on the verge of collapse. Well, joining us with the latest is Patrick Klein, the executive director of the Wyoming-based mission group Vision Beyond Borders. Mr. Klein and VBB have been working in Myanmar for years, helping widows and orphans. Patrick, always good to talk with you. So how bad is it? What are your workers and contacts inside Myanmar telling you? Thanks, Gary. It's good to be back on. You know, um, it's really difficult. It's a very dire situation. They're saying between 1,000 and 1,200 people are dying per day. Um, they said there's no oxygen. The government has cut down, has actually shut down uh, stores that sell oxygen in the country. Um, a lot of people cannot even go to hospitals. They're actually having to stay home and try to deal with the COVID situation. Um, and with so many people dying, you know, there's not enough ambulances to go around and pick up the bodies. So people are carrying their bodies to the cremation grounds and even cremating them in the streets. It's a horrible situation. Yeah, we've actually seen photos of people standing in long lines just to get what is left of the oxygen supply there in Myanmar. So what is preventing groups such as yours from delivering oxygen and other much needed supplies into the country? Well, the military has just completely shut down the country. Nobody's getting in or getting out. Um, they will not let oxygen come in from Thailand or surrounding countries. And even if you can get it in, they're going after the medical personnel. They're saying the medical personnel was helping with the demonstrations, supporting the people in the demonstrations. So the military is arresting medical, medical people. And so it's just, it's, it's really discouraging situation. It reminds me a bit of the Khmer Rouge uh, back uh, in Cambodia years ago. They went after the doctors and the intelligentsia, the, the uh, educated people in the society. So it seems just about everyone in Myanmar is suffering from the state of emergency there. Many people from the COVID health crisis, as you mentioned. But how about the orphan children that you've been helping? Are they getting food, other help that they need? How are they doing? You know, we're able to keep getting food to them. We're thankful for that. But, you know, we're hearing a lot of the common populace. The people don't have food. Um, they're saying the food prices have gone up 25 percent. Inflation is really high right now. Um, it's hard for people to get to the markets. You know, and even the kids in the orphanages, um, if they have any relatives in the villages, they're saying, please come to the village, get out of the city, because the military has been going door to door and even gone to some of the children's homes that we support and actually have beat up the leaders. Um, they've actually beaten up some of the teenage kids. Uh, the kids, they actually take them and they use them as porters 
and it's just horrible what they're doing to them. And it's, it is a lot like the Khmer Rouge, exactly the same situation, going after the intelligent people, the medical people, and it's just, it's very hard for the people. Well, the UN has expressed concern for other children, not just the or orphans. They say at least 75 have been killed, including a six-year-old that was shot in the stomach uh, in Mandalay. About 1,000 children have been detained since the military government took over. Also, countless others are being deprived of education, health care. So, Patrick, what can our viewers do at this point? You know, I think we need to pray. Most of all, we need to pray and ask for God's intervention. Um, we're praying on a daily basis, God, please help these kids. Um, we have actually one lady that runs an orphanage. She's 90 years old with 147 kids. Um, the kids have not been in school for two years because of COVID and then the military shut down. And so she's, her appetite has gone down. She's losing strength, but she's been helping teach the kids to keep them educated. So we need to keep praying for them and if, if possible to help any way we can. I, I'm just wondering too, if it wouldn't help if we were to write to our Congress people and tell them, our senators and Congress people and say, hey, please stand up for Burma because this could be a major genocide where they might just wipe out everybody. Yeah, we're not hearing much about it. Okay, Patrick Klein, of Vision Beyond Borders, thank you for sharing a heart for Burma, Myanmar, and sharing your time and insights with us, Patrick. Thank you, Gary. Here on the home front, Americans are becoming more negative about the future. A new ABC News poll found a majority of Americans, 55%, say they're pessimistic about the country's direction. That compares to 36% back in May. Why the huge nearly 20% increase in negative attitudes six months into the Biden presidency? Well, here to provide some insights is Financial Issues National Radio and TV host Dan Celia. Dan, it's good to hear from you on this. So what's up? Why do you think a majority of Americans are pessimistic about the country's future? Yeah, I think primarily, Gary, it's going to be inflation, number one. We got some very interesting inflation data out on Tuesday that, that came out, indicating a poll that uh, University of Michigan did, indicating that most people are very concerned about inflation and are looking at inflation rate as to what they think will be somewhere around 4.8%. That was the average. But inflation right now is sitting at a 13-year high. We're sitting at 5.4%. Gary, we haven't been there since August of 2008. I don't have to tell you what happened in, uh, later that year in October. So we're, this is 5.4% inflation rates, a 13-year high. This, that's got to be uh, weighing on an awful lot of people. And, you know, the, the average person is feeling that because the majority of this inflation has been on food. And uh, nobody's talking about that. They talk about the core inflation, which takes food out. But 5.4% inflation is extremely high for uh, the average person that hasn't seen inflation in a very, very long time. And that is one of the reasons. The other thing that we're seeing is people are pricing out of houses now. So uh, housing is the mortgage companies are saying, hey, we, we're, we're qualifying somebody for a mortgage, uh, 
they get ready to go to settlement and the house has increased in price by uh, $20,000 and now they don't qualify anymore. Mortgage companies are concerned about that, so are buyers. And then we have COVID. You know, people, uh, the, the uh, I call state-run media is talking about uh, COVID, uh, another round of the epidemic, and certainly that uh, lends itself to some pessimism, too. Well, that and creates a lot of uncertainty, doesn't it, Dan? Ex um, ex exactly. Yeah. And, of course, and, there's uh, the rising crime rate in major cities. A total of 2 million people expected to pour over the southern border as well by the end of this fiscal year. So how do all these developments play into consumer perceptions and what's the impact on the U.S. economy? Debt aside, national debt aside, which is impacting all of that, it creates an environment of hunkering down. People, when they get concerned about the uncertainty of the economy and the environment they're living in, they, the natural thing they do is they hunker down. And what I mean by that is they slow down their spending dramatically. And that has an incredibly negative impact on the economy and eventually trickles into business sentiment. And we could be looking at November, December business sentiment as being very concerning and weak. So uncertainty, never a good thing for the economy. Inflation, never a good thing for the economy. Crime, and as you say, the illegal uh, immigration that is expected to hit close to 2 million by the end of the year. And, and it doesn't look like anybody's doing anything to stop it. No wonder we're pessimistic right now. Any bright spots, yeah. Dan? I know travel is up for Americans. Uh, more Americans are vacationing this summer. There's some bright spots like that, uh, traveling, vacation, people are getting out. But, you know, I think that if we see even the slightest shutdown, as a result of this Delta variance, uh, people are fed up. They're really going to be, I think people are gonna be angry and uh, very, very much in a uh, mode of this is all too uncertain. Whether it's contrived or not, they're still gonna be thinking what's next. And that would be the reason why uh, six months into this administration that we're seeing these numbers that you mentioned uh, at the very beginning of this uh, of people becoming more pessimistic. And it has to be as a result of either what the administration is doing or what the administration isn't doing. And that's a huge concern for the average American. Okay, everyone looking for a little stability and certainty. Dan Celia, Financial Issues okay. National Radio and TV host. Always a pleasure talking with you, Dan. Thanks so much for sharing your time today. You're welcome, Gary. Great to be here with you. This week, Capitol Hill Police presented testimony in the first hearing of the House Select Committee on the January 6th riot. Committee members, including Representative Adam Schiff, say they intend to uncover the truth about what happened at the Capitol. But that's unlikely because this is a partisan, one-sided committee designed to disparage and demonize those who gathered in Washington that day. The real targets are not those who broke the law by forcefully breaching the Capitol building as lawmakers gathered inside, but Americans who came peacefully to support fair elections and President Trump.
If Speaker Pelosi and Democrats sincerely want to arrive at the truth and prevent this from happening again, then there must be justice. Testimony from the officer who shot and killed unarmed Air Force veteran Ashley Babbitt is of paramount significance. The officer's identity must be officially revealed and his testimony made public. We must learn why he felt it was necessary to pull the trigger on the 35-year-old Californian as she peacefully entered the House chamber. Ashley Babbitt's husband, Aaron, wants answers. He says he still received no explanation from the Capitol Police, the Department of Justice, his senators, or anyone else in Congress. Aaron Babbitt believes his wife would not have stepped through that House chamber door had she known an officer was ready to shoot her.